We live in the creative economy. If you've got one great idea and you properly monetize it, that could set you up for life. Think Suzanne Collins, who wrote Hunger Games, or Lin-Manuel Miranda with Hamilton. A big hit paired with a savvy business plan leads to a fountain of financial reward, to lifelong autonomy. Rosalind Wiseman had a great idea. She took girls, a subject of endless fascination, and mapped out the cliques they form, the alliances, the fallouts, so that adults, you know, teachers, parents, could understand. She boiled down behavior in girl world to seven highly predictable roles. I think, you know, one of the reasons why these roles that I've come up with are used in memes so often or used to describe, you know, political situations like, you know, the G7 summit is because <laughs> because you can see it, right? I mean, you really can see it. Even if you don't know Wiseman's name, she has touched your life. She is the author behind Mean Girls. Yeah, the movie sensation with a cult following that you may have watched one or 50 times. Her book, Queen Bees and Wannabes was a runaway bestseller. From the outside, she looked like she was set. But that is not the case. She did not reap the financial benefits attached to her work. Not a dime. The movie has made a tremendous amount of money, and um, I have received nothing after my initial advance. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Arthi Shahani. This is Art of Power. Today, Rosalind Wiseman on achieving what every creative dreams of and a painful reveal about her biggest failure. She was so focused on the work, she did not protect the business. For anyone hustling to turn an idea into a career, this case study is vital learning. And for all you fans, this is the untold story behind Mean Girls. Brace yourselves. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Rosalind Wiseman does not have a PhD in education, but she is a big-time leader in the field. Her focus is social-emotional learning, specifically for young people, and that includes things like sexual harassment and bullying. Heavy stuff. She traces her expertise back to her high school sweetheart and what she's called their abusive relationship. My boyfriend at the time was struggling with alcohol addiction. I was hit a couple times at school um, in my 10th grade year, but Mm -hmm. we were very much in the cycle where that would happen and he would apologize and then I would take him back and then things would escalate. And then, so those things were happening in my Mm -hmm. high school life. Um, My friends knew about it and didn't know what to do, or they got really angry at me because I wasn't standing up for myself or they got very angry at him and stopped being friends with him. But then I would go back and I would go back and I would go back. And was any part of that similar to treatment you experienced at home? No, no, not at all. Mm. I had no violence in my home at all. My experience was falling in love 
you know, head over heels, first love, 14 years old. And the other part was that he was a boy that girls thought, you know, was handsome and all that stuff. And it was also our relationship was reinforced by the adults because we were seen as a, you know, like every high school has them, the little married couple. And I remember, (laughs) I think it was my junior or senior year. There was a day where two teachers dressed up as me and my boyfriend for the day. And that was a bit of social status, right? Because if you get chosen, basically, to... Yeah, you're glorified. It's totally glorifying the relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that sometimes adults, well-meaning adults do, that um, they have no idea what they're doing to cement your identity. You have... What is a, a toxic experience? And you end up holding on to the memories of that experience, And you mine that pain for insights. Not everyone does that. You have kind of, I would say, like the courage and the fortitude and the the skill to look at what happened and to understand it beyond any sense of shame or guilt or just anger. How come? I, I just had this feeling of, I cannot replicate this. I cannot do this to myself. I am not mm-hmm. interested in having a lifetime of horrible relationships and dysfunctional relationships. I'm not going to do it. So I have to look at myself. After the relationship ended, Rosalind Wiseman and that ex were able to become friends in a healthy way. And she was able to realize that her incredibly painful personal experience was predictable. There was a system at work, group dynamics from the adults, the boy, the girls. She saw it and she figured, huh, if I could teach students what I've learned, maybe that could help them. So, without any formal role or training, she called her old high school and others and asked, Hey, could I come by and teach a workshop for students? Soon, she got calls. Rosalind remembers this one time. There was a boy who passed a note to a girl in a school. He was hitting on her. What the note said, it really bothered the girl. The boy picked up on that. He came up to her right after class and said, Basically something like, I'm sorry, like, are you angry at me? He asked her if she was angry at him and she Mm -hmm. said no. Mm -hmm. Then she went to her friends and she complained a lot about what had happened. Mm -hmm. Understandably, because she was not comfortable, didn't have the skills to say to his face what she was really feeling. The girlfriends, because they were defending their friend, and again, it's easier sometimes to defend your friends than yourself, went to that boy and totally in front of a lot of people totally yelled at him and got in his face and all of this stuff. And he, understandably, totally shut down. And then his friends got really, really angry. So by the time that I got involved in the situation, the boys and the girls at the school had positioned themselves in really oppositional ways. Wow. Yeah. Totally polarized. Totally polarized. And so it is totally... for lack of a better term, not cool to blame the girl for not being able to say, I am angry with you because she's been acculturated as a young woman to, to lie, to be Mm -hmm. evasive um, for very good. Like we have very powerful motivators to not say what we think as women, because down deep and sometimes really up in our face is the feeling of fear that we can't tell boys or tell men when they have stepped over the line, because it feels like if we do, that somehow we will put ourselves in danger. 
That is real. That is a real thing. Mm -hmm. On the other side, you can imagine that it's really understandable that if a boy who says to a girl, hey, like, did I go over the line? Are you mad at me? And she says no, because of all those really understandable reasons, but she says no, and he thinks that everything's fine. And then the next thing he knows is a group of girls getting up in his face about what he has done. Mm. It is understandable for that boy to be confused and angry about what happened because Mm -hmm. he doesn't understand the context because we only talk to boys about sexual harassment issues and consent stuff. And sound bites, like don't treat that girl the way you wouldn't want you to treat your mother or sister or something like that. And he he may have thought he was a good guy because he asked and she was like, Exactly. No. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I mean by taking responsibility for yourself, but not blaming yourself for what happened. There's a line there and it's really important to understand. I've been trying to figure that line out and communicate that line for two and a half decades. She got the boy and girl to have real talk in real time. Not years later, they and the rest of the school de-escalated. Early successes like this one and the visceral passion she has for diffusing social landmines, that prompts Rosalind to start her own nonprofit. She started it with her very next sweetheart, who became her husband. They ran workshops for students, parents, and teachers. And that becomes the basis for Rosalind Wiseman's next step, or more like crazy leap. You decide that you're going to turn the lessons, the anecdotes, these things that you're learning about cliques and how they form and who's in them, you're going to turn that into a book, a self-help book. (laughs) Why? Mm -hmm. Why? Parents would come up to me and say some variation of, can I talk to you for a second? And teachers know this. If you're a teacher, you know that when somebody says, can I talk to you for a second? They never mean a second. It's like, we're going to be a big, big, big thing. And I just wanted to be able to put down what I was seeing and the connections I was making um, into one place so that I could give it to parents. So I just pretended, I honestly pretended that or imagined that there was a parent next to me Uh and I just wrote everything I thought at the time that they needed to know. That's exactly what it sounded like, by the way. A conversational, page-turning, and really funny self-help book. A Bible for parents desperate to understand their daughters and the mystery that is a click. Drawing from conversations with thousands upon thousands of young people, Rosalind boils down girl behavior into seven roles or archetypes. They are the target the sidekick, the banker, the floater, the torn bystander, the wannabe or messenger, and the queen bee herself. If you're wondering who you are, there's a handy checklist in the book. My guest is Rosalind Wiseman, who is Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman. The launch of her book goes spectacularly well. A first-time author's dream Montel Williams. Please welcome the co-founder of the Empower Program, Rosalind Wiseman, to the show. Oprah Winfrey. Ms. Magazine, in a spread called Uppity Women. A column by New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. Queen Bees and Wannabes comes out in 2002. It has multiple reprintings. Its shelf life spans well over a generation. Rosalind Wiseman hit a nerve. 
Now, there is, according to Rosalind, a couple key pitfalls in her book. One, her treatment of gender. She wrote another book about boys later on, and she says young people have since pushed her past rigid binary categories to understand how gender is more fluid. The other pitfall involves the archetypes themselves. She did not set out to be mean, Rosalind says, but the labels she created, they sometimes get used to troll or pathologize girls. The issue was, and this was really hard for me, was that I did this and I did these roles because I wanted to create a language where people could talk about the behavior so that if they saw problematic behavior, they could change it in themselves. So a queen bee, you know, girl could say, oh, wow, okay, I I do realize that I'm doing these things and the reasons I'm doing it, but look at what it's costing me. But unfortunately, what happened is that parents, for example, would read queen bees and say, oh, that's that girl that I don't like that hangs out with my daughter. Mm. There were girls who got very frustrated with me and would write to me and I agreed with them. They would say, like, stop putting us in boxes. We don't want to be labeled like this. And I 100 percent understood where they were coming from. Rosalind chalks the early success of Queen Bees and Wannabes to two things. One, her relationships with schools and youth groups all over the country. Before the book came out, she'd spent years building an audience, a robust network of people who trusted her and cared about the issues her book addressed. And two, a timely magazine article, one that caught the attention of another writer. You had a meet cute with Tina Fey. Tell me about how you met her. What's your meet cute? So my work was getting a lot of public notice, but about six weeks before Queen Bees was published, I was profiled in the New York Times magazine mm-hmm. and she read it and she needed to write a screenplay. She was under contract to write a screenplay on something and she read the article and decided well, this is something I can write about. And so I got a call from my agent saying that this woman, Tina Fey, wanted to buy the rights for the screenplay. And very quickly, I decided, I talked to her on the phone, I decided she was somebody that basically, you know, like I could hang out with. And I got a sense from her that she was not going to do it in a way that superficialized girls or pathologized girls. And by that point, I had actually turned down a couple of offers for that reason. You mean to option the book? Yeah, I had. I had already, yeah, I'd already done that. And I, it was something that felt right to me. So I, I decided to give her the rights to sign over the rights to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that first conversation? Like, why did she feel right to you? Well, I mean, she's a woman who's, you know, around my age, you know, we have a similar sense of humor, a similar sense of, I think, seeing the world. She addressed some of my concerns right off the bat. She very much was not the thing which I'd already had the experience of people being super cheesy and just fakes, like super, super fake. And it just felt like here's a competent woman who's going to do a good job. So yeah, seems like a good idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was that, it's pretty much that sophisticated of an assessment. <laughs> now, you may have noticed there's a distinct 
quality to Rosalind's voice when we begin talking about Tina Fey. I'd expected unbridled joy that Rosalind would tell me about this amazing girl power friendship with celebrity comedian of Saturday Night Live fame. But she doesn't. She talks with a tinge of restraint or hesitation or maybe even regret. So I, I decided to give her the rights to sign over the rights to the book. After the break, we unpack what is going on here. It's a story Rosalind Wiseman has never publicly shared. The inside story of Mean Girls. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Do you remember Mean Girls? It was epic. That is so fetch. Gretchen, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Tina Fey took Rosalind Wiseman's archetypes from the target to the queen bee and turned them into hilarious, if creepy, stereotypes. Of course, all the plastics are in the same gym class. Who are the plastics? They're teen royalty. Rosalind Wiseman was super nervous on the heels of the movie's release. Of course I was nervous. I had no idea. Of course I was nervous. I can't go out. Uh, uh, I'm sick. Boo, you whore. I remember looking at Regina George and thinking, oh my God, they have gotten it. They've gotten that thing that girls do. Oh my God, I love your skirt. Where did you get it? And mm-hmm. like, oh, that's so scary. Like, I remember thinking like, oh my God, she's terrifying. She's terrifying. This girl is the nastiest skank bitch I've ever met. Rosalind was turned into a fictional character, too. A feminist math teacher named Ms. Norberry, played by Tina Fey. She coaches the North Shore mathletes. And in a crisis moment, she rounds up students in the gym. I want you to raise your hand if you have ever said anything about a friend behind her back. (laughs) Uh, It's been some girl-on-girl crime here. She makes them do trust falls. Okay, walk it off. Walk it off. I do not do trust falls. I do not trust trust falls. <laughs> so there, there were things in there that I felt like, wait a minute. <laughs> oh Imagine writing a brilliant book, crossing paths with a brilliant screenwriter, and through the forces of talent and chance, out comes a movie sensation. An achievement so great It's a household name, a cultural touchpoint on the global stage. The president uh, wanted to avoid going to the G7. He's now cutting short uh, his time there. It's a little bit like Mean Girls in reverse. You are now the president of the United States, the commander-in-chief, and you need to stop acting like a mean girl. Mean Girls, the movie, and then later the Broadway musical, makes more than a quarter billion dollars in combined ticket sales. 
how much money do you think Rosalind Wiseman made? Six figures? Seven figures? Eight? If you had to guess, my guess was way off. In my fantasy life, oh, wow, here's this, like, you know, popular educator who ran around schools teaching kids and then wrote a self-help book and then it made it onto the Hollywood big screen. And now, like, in my fantasy life, you're a multimillionaire riding horses. (laughs) It's like, that's... Yeah, that's not the case at all. The movie has made a tremendous amount of money and um, I have received nothing not a dime since my initial um, advance that I got from Queen Bees and Wannabes when I gave Paramount the rights. Rosalind Wiseman is, for the first time, speaking publicly about the economics of Mean Girls. For years, her anger has festered. Remember, girls aren't supposed to express anger. Now, she is ready to let it out. And also, I bothered to ask her, so how was that deal anyway? When Rosalind sold her book to Paramount Pictures, she got a really nice chunk of cash up front, $440,000. She paid her taxes and put the rest of it in a college fund for her two small children, she says. Paramount execs told her to expect more if the movie was successful. Specifically, she'd get 5% of net proceeds. Are you expecting the checks to start coming in? Well, I had heard that it's really, really hard. And the movie really has to be incredibly successful. But I thought because um, Queen Bee, um, excuse me, Mean Girls cost about um, $17 million to make, if I remember correctly, and then you double that for PR and marketing. You know, when we crossed the $100 million mark, I felt like it was somewhat reasonable that I would start getting something. Despite the movie being a box office sensation, the corporation that made it told her it was in the red. And then when you don't get something, what do you think or do? You know, I just, you know, I um, asked and I was told that the movie had not made money yet and that it was not profitable. Uh uh Rosalind, I'd like to play something for you. Your friend, Shantara McBride, you connected me to her, right? I wanted to understand from someone who was there with you what life was like at the time of this explosion, this fame. She described it as very tense. Here's what she had to say. There were these assumptions that were made by people, of course, on the outside looking in that, oh, her book, you know, has turned into a movie. So she's getting like a buttload of money. She's best friends with Lindsay Lohan, you know, just all these things. And what was happening was completely this this idea of what people assume comes with fame from your work uh, was just not happening um, at all. Yeah, people would make comments about, you know, how much money I was making off of the DVDs at the time, because there were such a thing at the time. And um, people assumed a lot of things about me. And when people think you have a lot of money, then, you know, things change, relationships change. And that was not what was happening. I also felt, and this was the first of many times where I felt like I had to protect the reputation of Mean Girls and sort of the franchise and what it was about. Why did you feel you had to protect it? 
because I feel so strongly about women supporting other women. By women, she's referring to Tina Fey. Paramount's accounting is not the fault of the supremely talented, powerful celebrity comedian. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. That is not on her at all. Now let's pivot to the part where Rosalind Wiseman believes Tina Fey is culpable. I want to talk about uh, Mean Girls. Yeah. The musical. It's coming to Broadway. It's moving along. Dude! Does it follow the movie exactly, the plot? Uh, we, we haven't finished it yet, but it's close. Yes, pretty close. What is Tina Fey is making the rounds. In 2016, she starts telling TV hosts like Jimmy Fallon and Andy Cohen that she and her composer husband are bringing the beloved movie, still based on Rosalind's book, to the stage. She starts talking about it in the press. And that's how you hear about it. That's how I hear about it really becoming... Going from, oh, yeah, we might do this to, yeah, it's happening. Rosalind had asked about doing this, turning Queen Bees into a live play a decade earlier. More than one producer had approached her about it. She assumed she could, but Paramount told her, nope, your film agent failed to preserve that right for you. You do not have that right. It's ours. You kind of assume you have the right, and then you're kind of slapped in the face with not having it. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's fair. And smack out of the blue, Faye is using the very rights Rosalind was denied. What was your relationship at that time like with Tina Fey? It was cordial. I mean, it, it's always been cordial. Um, you know, she was always very gracious in interviews about where the source material came from. And she has always been very, very gracious and um about how important the work is that I do. The original source material for the movie is this book called Queen Bees and Wannabes by a woman named Rosalind Wiseman. And it's a sociology book that she wrote after working in high schools for years. So you felt like seen and acknowledged by her? Um, Yes, I did. I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really feel strongly about women supporting other women. And I wanted to think the best of the situation, or I didn't maybe say to you this way, I didn't want to think the worst of the situation. Rosalind decides to write a letter to Tina Fey directly and ask, can we tag team to make this musical a force for good? I mean, especially given what's happening in America under Donald Trump, Rosalind, decades into grassroots education, is seeing a stark change. She explains this to Faye in a letter dated New Year's Day 2017. Every community Rosalind enters, rural, suburban, urban, wealthy, poor, conservative, liberal, everyone is grappling with the same problem. A vocal minority of students and adults ever more brazen in their bigotry. In one school, she explains, four students created a YouTube channel celebrating Auschwitz, rape, and school shootings. Rosalind had founded a new organization, Cultures of Dignity, to confront this bullying. She tells Faye, my request is that the musical be a vehicle to financially support these initiatives. This is a really important opportunity because already we had unprecedented rates of depression and anxiety among young people. And I thought that if we could do something like like we could do something to make this to make this good, to make this bigger than a musical, make the musical an opportunity mm-hmm. for massive education, for continuing your work, your life's work. Yes, absolutely. And how did that conversation go? Oh, it was great. 
it was great. Um, I got an email back saying, absolutely right. We should totally do this as, you know, totally use this as an opportunity. Um, I'll put you in touch with the right people. It was, she was immediately gracious, um, which she always is. Faye invites Rosalind into the process. The two exchange extensive emails, which we've reviewed, on the musical's script and character development. Rosalind goes to New York to train the young cast on how to lead after-show anti-bullying workshops with fans. Rosalind and Faye sit together in a ballroom full of reporters and theater reviewers and explain, this musical, it's more than a musical. It's a response to hate. Rosalind is hopeful. Maybe Mean Girls the movie didn't serve her life's work as she'd hoped, but this musical would be a fresh start. Only, it wasn't. The closer I got to the opening night, the more the um, people that I was working with to create these programs got more evasive, took things away, you know, sort of put things later, um, started getting less clear in their wording. And my little organization had done so much work to prepare for this. And just as close as we got, closer we got to the opening night, the more evasive they got. And I realized on opening night that I'd been absolutely taken for a fool. Mm. Mm. The musical comes out and it's got none of the contribution you were trying to make to make it an educational experience too? Well, some of the um, feedback I'd given Tina about the musical was in the musical. Um, but no, none of the like public education things that we were going to do adjacent to the musical, that all just was, I think it was a sham. It just evaporated. In retrospect... One clue early on should have tipped Rosalind Wiseman off that her proposal was not really being taken seriously. Tina Fey did not offer to fund it. When Rosalind had to figure out how to pay for her travel, she turned to a partner on a totally different project. A small fund started for survivors of the Sandy Hook mass shooting. They offered to help her out when the Mean Girls musical did not. The play has grossed $124 million. This is the way Hollywood and entertainment goes, which is like sort of squirrels gathering as much nuts as possible in your mouth and not wanting to share. Shortly after the musical's release, Rosalind Wiseman emailed Tina Fey again. The subject line, this is hard to send and hope you understand. Rosalind said in the email that she didn't want to place Faye in an awkward position. But Rosalind pleaded. Paramount had unfairly profited, extraordinarily so, at my expense. I have never received a cent of profits. I am hoping that you will mediate or support my claim. Faye responded within a few hours. She thanked Rosalind for writing. She said she valued their collaboration and promised to bring her financial concerns to the head honcho, producer Lauren Michaels. Rosalind says, despite multiple attempts, she never heard from Tina Fey again. Fey ghosted her. And 
Tina Fey's move surprises you? It disappoints me. It deeply disappoints me. And why? Because she's a writer herself. Because um, of what she says and how she treats me to my face, or how she, you know, writes to me by, you know, how she corresponds with me, how she presents to the world, all of it, all of it. It was deeply, it was deeply disappointing, and it was very much like, how is this happening? And what could she have done that would have been not disappointing, but what you believe would be in line with the talk, you know? Now, I don't, honestly, I literally do not know at what point she finds out that I have no rights. I don't know that. But if I had been in her shoes, the moment that I had found out and that I knew that we were doing this, I would have advocated for the person who was the original creator of this work to somehow benefit from what was going to be a a really guaranteed success. And it's really tough to acknowledge like personally, because it, it really like, it's not just about like, I'm not getting what I deserve or, and frankly that I'm not taking away from that, but it's also really, really like gets at you, like at your heart. And then you don't want to admit it. Like you don't want to admit it to yourself. You don't want to admit it. You certainly don't want to admit it out loud because you don't want the world to look at this and then create some meme about like mean women and mean girls and, you know, and dismissing and superficializing the work because there is this inconsistency in real life. I just hated that. I hate it. I hate to this day. I hate talking about it. It's the reason I haven't talked about it for so long is because I don't want it to be superficialized to, oh, look, see, women don't support each other. And I don't think that's really what this is about, Arthi. I actually think this is about what your podcast is about. I think it's about power. And I think that people who have power sometimes think of it really as a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I was up against a system that abuses power and people who are very successful in that system who use their power against me. And I was silent until now. And it feels like, especially with the musical, it feels like we could have done so many good things, but because it felt like if they gave me any power, any credibility, any contribution to this, that somehow their power would be decreased. Somehow they would lose something that they were not willing to lose. And as a result, that justified what they did. Anyone who really knows Hollywood deals will be utterly unsurprised. Rosalind's bum deal is like a lot of other bum deals. The difference is that she's putting it on the record. Movie deals are usually shrouded in mystery, with lots of name dropping, but very little number dropping. Also, we live in a different time. Think about it. We're willing to revisit all sorts of norms and redistribute power. Rosalind, I want to refer to your book and now tie it back to your life experience. In your archetype of girls, the seven roles that you describe. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Which one do you feel is Tina Fey? (sighs) Gosh, I just... 
you know, it's the easy thing to say the queen bee, right? I mean, that's the easy answer. That's the easy answer. And it, it just kills me. I hate saying that so much. I hate it. I just hate it. And if you were to say in this huge life lesson for you, mm-hmm. you were dealing with who you consider now in retrospect to be a queen bee. What's the lesson you learned from that? You know, I, I'm a political theorist by training and Machiavelli is somebody that I um, read a lot. I mean, I read like every year. And I think that that's where um, a lot of people in this situation, I would say were very Machiavellian that the, the ends justify the means. Um, but what's the life lesson? Well, the life lesson is why was I so silent when I was literally telling boys and girls all of this time to speak out when there's been when they've experienced an abuse of power? Mm-hmm. And your answer to that is because just like everybody else, I got into the situation where I was intimidated and felt overwhelmed, and that silenced me. And so I think it's extremely humbling that I know what it feels like to really um, feel like you have no power, especially when it looks like you do. Rosalind, I want to ask you a final question. I want you to take a very deep breath. I'm doing it already. As dispassionately as possible, okay? What would Paramount and Tina Fey say in response to what I've said today it's not my problem you made a bad deal honestly I mean I think that's what it is I think that I had bad representation that's my problem I should have been smarter I wasn't they should not pay for my naivete I think that's about the film I think the stuff about the musical um I just don't even understand why you would do the things that happened, why you would promise things that would help so many people and then turn your back on it. I have no answer for that. We reached out to ask. Tina Fey declined to comment. Mean Girls producer Lauren Michaels declined to comment. And as team at NBC Universal told us, our inquiry should be directed to Tina Fey. The film agent who represented Rosalind, Cassie Evashevsky, said through a spokesperson, she hasn't worked with or spoken to Rosalind Wiseman in years, but wishes her well. Paramount Pictures, in an email, said, quote, Miss Wiseman signed a contract. She received a substantial upfront payment. She was entitled to more if and only if certain contractually defined thresholds were achieved. Those thresholds have not been triggered. In other words, Mean Girls is still, according to Paramount's accounting, in the red. When I think of your work without speaking to you, just sort of from a distance, you've achieved what I want to achieve, right? And it's, I mean, it's its a ubiquitous goal for for so many of us. It's like, uh, to take work that you've put on the page 
and find a way to get it out to millions upon millions of people. And it feels like unfair and wrong that the work that's fueled so much popular education wouldn't be financially rewarded, funded, sort of backed up by the the profits. Yeah, that is true. And my lawyers actually laughed. There was a lot of hot, like sort of, you know, that kind of laughing where someone's like feels really bad for you. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I'm an expert <laughs> in that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that sucks. <laughs> right. No, wow, wow. This is the worst deal I've ever seen. I'm like, that's awesome. Thanks. Right, right. <laughs> but you know what? Here's a positive. The positive I've heard through the grapevine is that mine was so bad that people who knew about it used it as a boilerplate of what not to do. That's amazing, Rosalind. So it's like your toxic high school relationship becomes the basis for educating young people and your toxic <laughs> movie deal becomes the basis for educating the rest of us. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have not thought about it like that. That's like, Yes. Here's what I learned from Rosalind Wiseman. One, people are aching to learn from others' pain. If you can mine your toughest life lessons, your traumas, for actionable insights, many will listen to you. Two, laughter is medicine. If you can laugh through pain, delight in the tragic irony of the many unfair deals life hands you, that'll help you keep on going. Three, People who have the zero-sum mindset may treat you as an afterthought, erase your value. So you have to assert yourself, stand up, and express your anger. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Candace Mattel-Khan, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our intern is Hina Shravastava. If you liked this episode, please take out that phone, assuming you're not driving, take it out and hit the subscribe button or leave a review or tell your friends and family. Let me know what you think too. You can text me at 917 708 5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Artifi411. I want to hear from you. All right, see you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.